Uh, Chris, are you eating Kit Kats again? No, I'm eating Starburst. Yeah. Is it still <laughs> Halloween candy? No, no. <laughs> Starburst. These are Starbursts I got from this random guy on the street. That's always That's good. a great idea. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I was walking down the street and this guy came up to me with a pack of Starburst in his hand. And I love Starburst and I stopped buying them because I was eating way too many of them. I ate like 40 of them in one sitting and almost got sick. No, I did get sick. And then, um, yeah. and, and the guy had a par- pack of Starburst and he said, I'll give you a pack of Starburst for a cigarette. And I was like, deal. We are broadcasting live from a moderately secure, often disclosed location near the shores of Lake Maspinock. And as you know, this location is in a shed. Crack the beer. So welcome to the Art Shed. I'm Matt Carl. I'm Normal Andy. Hi, producer Chris. Uh, Matt Normal Andrew. Andrew. Normal Andrew. Yeah, I'm on, but... So it... Were you guys expecting me to ramble on longer with the start? Sorry. I don't even remember what happened a minute ago. So yeah, okay, good, good, good. It's, it is the second episode of the night. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we're here. Yeah, we're here with uh, glass blower and uh, glass maker. Glass dude. maker. Sorry, I forgot. Uh, He's art a, teacher. Yeah. Uh, Kung fu practitioner. I mean, I'm, I'm way more of a of an art teacher now more than I am a glass maker, but. It's in well, there. before we get to our teacher, I we want to we were talking off mic a little bit about how you were you're in a uh, you're in a cover band for a while, and I was wondering if we could start right there. Yeah, uh, sounds great. Yeah, well, I mean, when I was in high school, um, well, first of all, there's some family dynamics that you need to know about. My 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 brother's five years older than me, and uh, I don't know yeah. why, but I just you know, I mean, like any younger brother, you could probably speak to this a little. I wanted to be like my older brother. You know, he was definitely right. my hero for, for a little while. And it, and still is in some ways. So basically um, him and my, uh, I have a cousin who played the drums, who's like one year younger than him. So I was like kind of too young really to be like hanging out with them. But I wanted to be so badly. Anyway, they decided they were going to form this like garage band. And, uh, they had a they had a friend who played the guitar. My cousin played the drums, and my brother kind of played the guitar. And then we just didn't have anybody to sing, and there was no bass player. So I was like, I guess I'll learn the bass, you know. And then that was kind of like <laughs> that was my my ticket to like yeah. kind of hang out with them all. So so we started a band, and we called ourselves Barring Abstinence. <laughs> which um, what the fuck and, does that mean? So basically it was like the Surgeon General at the time had said something about like using prophylactics. Like right. but bar like barring abstinence, you should use a condom, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. So we were like, I don't even know how we came up with that, but we're like somebody said it and he just like, We're using this. We're like, yeah, that's the name of the band. So we're like barring yeah. abstinence. All right. So anyway, like um we just could never find a singer and we had very mixed ideas about like the future of the band. Like my brother and I really wanted it to be like originals 
and uh, we would work on that stuff on our own. And then, but like we had one guitarist who just was like, like all about doing cover songs. And uh, he, for whatever reason, just I guess had a more weight in that decision. And the the drummer would kind of go back and forth. Uh, like sometimes when we had him, like it was just me and him or my brother and me and him, like he would be like, yeah, yeah. Like real agreeable about doing the like originals. And then it, it would come down to it and we were all together as a band. We would just wind up playing like covers. Cover of, yeah. We just do like, it was like cure covers and um, we did like a helmet cover. We tried to do a Primus tune and then, some Alice in Chains tunes, and of course, we did some Jane's Addiction. Nice. And um, my first, like, seriously, I, I love Jane's Addiction. Like, my brother introduced me to them. We were, we had snuck out to go surfing. It was like right before he left to go to college. My brother went to Pratt, actually. He's also an artist. Anyway, he, he so right before he left, we snuck out. We pretended we were going to karate class. And instead, we had, like, thrown our, like, surfboards out the, like, second floor window and, and like, snuck all the equipment we needed, like, out the window into the backyard and then snuck it around to the front of the house and, like, carried it, like, down the street. And my cousin met us down the street and we, like, strapped it all onto the car down the street and then we drove to the beach. And as we were driving, my brother was like, you got to listen to this. And they... They put on nothing shocking, nice. and uh, it just blew my mind. It was like, it was the perfect time to like just be hearing something new like that too. Like we were on this exciting kind of adventure. We were gonna go surfing. It was night. Uh, it was a full moon, and we were just like, it was the first time I'd ever gone surfing, which I would not recommend. The first time you ever go surfing to be at night. <laughs> yeah. That was a bad idea. Um, and I nearly died, but that's for another time, I guess. Basically, um, yeah. it was the first time I heard Jane's Addiction, and I've been in love with them ever since. And basically, yeah. um, I've just, I really feel like Perry, Perry is a genius. Like, there's times where I'm like, this guy's a genius. And then there's other times where I'm like, this guy's just completely insane. Right. Yeah. I just remember the time when I just remember when when uh, Jane's Addiction came out, and I heard it. It was just like boom. You know what I mean? Like same thing with you. Same thing with me. We were just infatuated with Jane's Addiction. It was just just so original and so good at the time. And Perry Farrell was such a fucking heroin junked freaker. Yeah. You know, he was awesome. Uh, you know, like a, a waif. Uh, I just loved that fucking band. Yeah. And the first time I saw them, like, I think I saw, like, some video of, like, Mountain Song. And just, like, he just looked like somebody had, like, plugged him into a, a wall socket. Like, he just yeah. was, like... Yeah, like, exactly. The energy coming out of him, like, he was, like, his whole body was tensed up while he was singing. Like, it just was... Like, I don't know. You could just tell there was something, there was just something magical about those, those guys like together and, and, uh, totally. And it was like such a small slice of time too. It it was yeah. like, they, yeah. they were like a meteor that 
burned out because I think it was might might have been like a two or three year period that I really was into Jane's Addiction, and then I didn't really think about him anymore after that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, I saw him like three times. Yeah. I saw him at the first um, uh, Lollapalooza, or one of the was it the first Lala? Did they play the first Lollapalooza? Uh, they might have. They are the ones who basically like started that whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah. this is funny. This is one funny story, slightly getting off the subject, but it, it was the first Lollapalooza, and I was in the parking lot at Great Woods, and um, there was this punk uh, who was drinking out of a, you know a bottle of like whiskey or something like that and the the cops and the go-kart the go-kart people stopped and they made him pour out no it was tequila a bottle of tequila they made him pour out his tequila Mm. and he was like a punk you know all the all the gear and like uh so after the cops made him pour out his whole bottle of tequila he got down in a push-up position did push-ups and sucked the tequila off the parking lot. <laughs> like, like, uh, like did another push-up and sucked the tequila. And while the while the like car people were still there, and yeah. then they they shook their heads and throw up. And I was just watching this, and it was like it's such a vivid memory in my head. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that triggers something uh, with me. Like that sort of attitude is like growing up. Carl and my father used to clash a lot. And when my dad would get on Carl's case, Carl would say, "Yes, sire. Sorry for you, master." It's <laughs> <laughs> just like he's like weird, like militant, like insulting, like <laughs> condescending, like way of saying, "Like yes, I'll do whatever you say, master." And then you and you pick up the say you'd say that to me. Yeah, too. yeah, we would all we all picked up Yay. that that quote. But uh, I, I know Carl. Carl was the one who introduced me to Jane's Addiction, and I remember he had like, did you have a bunch of records yeah. at that time? Yeah, I think you had a Jane's Addiction record, and you like, I came home from school, and you came downstairs, which was like odd, and you're like, hey, like, it was this weird moment where Carl took an in- active interest in me that wasn't like aggravating me or, or like antagonizing me, and he was like, brought me up to his room, and he was like, listen to this, and he put on. Uh, that stand in the shower thinking song. Really? Yeah, yeah, you did, and you were like, like, like you know, really getting into it, and then you really were like excited about this one line, and and you like pointed it out, to, like you made me stick around for this one line, and it, the line was, "And I'm pissing on myself." <laughs> <laughs> that's like, like such a weird moment. Shower thinking. Yeah, and that was, that's such a weird moment in my life. I feel like I was in like junior high when. Yeah. And like, yeah, I'm like seven years older than Andy. Yeah, Carl's seven years older than me. But, oh, wow. You know, that's weird because I don't remember that at all. No, of course you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was like in your. Like, I was probably your, like so into the. Period. I was probably so into the, the song. Like, mm. like I'm like, I had to like, like, and I'm sitting there by myself. And I had to get Andy like, yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, I'm like the super nerdy, like. <laughs> like giant classes art nerd like with like a, a mullet and stuff like yeah. that jane's uh, addiction i can't believe yeah, i introduced yeah. you to jane's addiction yeah I no and like then a- i have another jane's so i mean that was my introduction to jane's addiction but i didn't get into them till probably sloan you're probably the one who really got me to get into them in college you know, because well let me finish my story and then you can yeah yeah, yeah. go ahead go ahead this is a story about me and our. We had a friend named Saul Chernick, who's another yeah. artist that we should probably get on the shed at some point in time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but 
freshman year, you're like st- spending time in the studio and you're drawing, like in your homework, it takes a lot of time. So uh, me and Saul were hanging out in the, in the studio working on our drawing projects. And uh, this other girl in our class came in and was working on stuff too. And, you know, we had something to play music through, like a tape player, and she put in Jane's Addiction. And I was like, let's listen to this. And me and Saul vetoed it. And we're like, no, we want to listen to Boston. Oh, no way. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. I thought you were going to say year fish. Later, we were, a year later, we were both super into Jane's Addiction. I think that was because of you, Sly. Oh. So you well, beat you Jane's Addiction. I know. It's a great embarrassment what, of my life. What, what Boston sign? Oh, I don't know. It's just another band out of Boston, <laughs> man. Just you know, like, <laughs> one of the best times, like, that I can remember, like, from our freshman year was at some point, Saul, Saul got his hands on a copy of Rage Against the Machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Saul was, like, a super, like, um, his family was, like, kind of really orthodox. Uh, like, they were, like, orthodox a special branch of, branch of, like, Judaism where, like, they were, like, they were, like, the priests of, like, a, there was something about their family. Like they were the only people in the community that could like, I don't know, like touch, like deal with like dead people or something. I don't know. There was something special about like their family line. And he was rebelling against that so hard. And, um, but he didn't have any voice like to, to do that. So I feel like he got his hands on like um, rage against the machine and nice. he listened to Killing in the Name of basically <laughs> on a loop for like a day. Yeah. And he was like jumping off furniture, like just screaming, like, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like for a day he just said that line over and over and over. And I was, I could tell, wow. like, it really changed him. Like, um, but they were super. Um, there was a couple of people in our in our suite who were like kind of Orthodox Jewish. And I didn't really understand that. It was like my first time really kind of being in pl- like close proximity to that. And um, there were times when they weren't allowed to use anything electrical. Um, oh yeah. And but they weren't allowed to ask you to do it. So one time Saul just kept telling me like, "I really have to pee." I really have to pee. And I'm like, why is he telling me this? Like, he doesn't need my permission. You know, like, I don't need to know about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. And then I realized, like, there was no light on in the bathroom and there was no windows or anything. It was just a complete, it was just a dark, a bl- pitch black room. And so what he was trying to do was, like, get me to turn the light on for him. Right. But I had no idea. And then another time, like, he couldn't ask. Like, I think that's, like, that's part of the rules to to the whole thing. Like, and then um, there was another time he was like yeah. waiting for a friend. The friend called him, and they left an uh, they left a message on his answering machine, and he couldn't play the answering machine. So he like, but he couldn't ask me to play the answering machine for him. So he was being really creative about like trying to like <laughs> clue like clue me in to the fact that he needed me to press play on the answering machine, you know, like so that he could get the message. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. But um, but he's a super sweet guy, and uh, yeah, he's, and he's like definitely broken out of that. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, like he he has like purged that completely from his system. Like, he, by the time we left college, he had. 
And if you ever need to raise a barn or something, you just bring them over. Well, I, mean, I, I don't know if he has those skills. But. Yeah, yeah. He's more of a printmaker and a painter and drawer. Yeah, he, yeah, and, um, he just has a like. I feel like this is something I've always admired about you, Andy. Like, and Saul also. Like, just you guys have a work ethic that's ridiculous. Yeah. I, that was something that Saul always like. Yeah, uh, he admired him does, for that. Right? Like, he just doesn't stop. He doesn't stop working. And um, and he doesn't stop thinking about it all either, uh, which I think is really important. Yeah, too. he was like the guy in class who like in art school you have like critiques. Like everyone hangs their art on the wall and there's a critique, and <laughs> then you're all supposed to talk about it. And freshman year I had classes with Saul, and that was like really lucky because Saul had this mind. He re- was really good at breaking down art, and our critique was pretty much Saul talking. And then every once in a while, everyone else would chime in because they were forced to. And, and he's always really good at breaking down what people are doing. Did they want to hear him talk? Yeah, he was really good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. he had he always had really insightful things. And like you know, someone put up some homework that they probably didn't spend like ten minutes on, and Saul would look at it and like find this like gem of an idea in the artwork and like. Yeah. I, I, he is he just, a teacher now? Yeah, he's a teacher okay. now. Yeah. Wow, like, yeah. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a while, but the last time I... It makes sense. You know, he was a teacher. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, you know, Sloan, you're a teacher too. Yes, yeah. Um, that's and that's you've been... eventually where my, my art philosophy led. Right, yeah. I, I basically, like, um, I just um, really was kind of railing against the whole, like, elite thing that was going on and 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 also this kind of bullshit thing that was like when you said those critiques like it totally brought me back like i walked out of so many of those critiques because (laughs) i knew that what the person was saying was just utter bullshit and yeah and like i was like i i just refused to listen to it anymore and we had one teacher named al wonderlick um (laughs) yeah it was just a brilliant name but um with his class especially for some reason i just couldn't tolerate it anymore i was just done with it and i and i was like sick of people talking about the craft that they were doing like their skill building exercises as though it was their art was like that was pissing me off to no extent and then uh, so i was like i can't take this anymore and i would just he would like I, I would somebody would say something to critique and I would just get like that pained expression on my face and like he we would share a glance and then I would just get up and walk out and <laughs> and he, he knew exactly what was going on and, and like but yeah. he had he had an ability to speak to to the students like at whatever level they were at which I yeah. at that point I didn't have that I didn't understand that and I was just too angry at that time, I think to, to like really appreciate that as fully as I do now. Um, and there was another professor there, Rachel Berwick, who was amazing at this also. Um, she came to us from, from Yale and, um, and she like took over when the head of our department went on sabbatical. Basically, um, she just was so good at, she was, she was so much more knowledgeable than any of us. And she just, she had her shit together like so much more than any of us and she was able to just go 
like almost travel back through her own development to where these people were. And then, wow. and then just kind of like give them that little push, like, mm-hmm. like not even think like even close to trying to push them up to where she was, but right. just trying to, to give them that extra little push to like be a little bit more than where they were. And, uh, she was just an amazing, um, teacher. Um, so I, I try, you know, I try to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Successfully. Younger kids, right? I'm dealing with much younger kids at this point. I started off in a middle school. Um, and I was at that point I was working with the special ed population. Um, and then, uh, and then I, I got hired, um, on the elementary level. And so we were kindergarten through fifth grade. And uh, that's where I'm still at. And I've been there for, now for like, I think about 18 years. Oh, yeah. which is pretty crazy. And then I was also, you know, I was doing this band thing. And, uh, and I was also like, you know, I was, I kind of got to a point where I was more interested in, I was less interested in like artifacts and like having my, my art making was just so much not about, like the end result of some artifact and it was it was way more about like just creating an experience for people and i i felt like that's what the artifacts were trying to do but Mm -hmm. it just it just wasn't i don't know like it wasn't powerful like in the way that there's a couple of pieces of art where i've just been like blown away like this there's no way to misunderstand this there's no way to this is just like just raw art. Like there's no way anybody is going to misconstrue this at all. And this will be alive forever, you know, like, but then there's just a what? lot of dead art out there. And what can you yeah. talk about those pieces? Right. I mean, I can tell you like one time I went on a trip to DC and uh, we went yeah. through all the museums in DC, like, and then yeah, at one point we found ourselves, um, we found ourselves at the Vietnam Memorial. Um, to me, that's like just a hugely successful piece of art. Yeah. It's basically a wall of names. Like, yeah. But these, like when you're standing there and you're just confronted with just the huge loss of life that, that occurred because of this war. Um, I mean, there, there, there wasn't a dry eye to be seen, like, walking around that memorial. And you saw people, like, family members, like, reaching up and, like, touching the name of their, like, lost loved one. And it just was, like, it was, it was that performance quality of it also that just was so genuine. Like, it, these were not actors. These were real people who were feeling real feelings because of this... Uh, like because of this wall of names. Right. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It just, I, maybe I was just there at the right time at the right moment, or I don't know what, but it's, it's burnt into my head. The, the experience of seeing that wall. Um, and maybe some people don't think of that as art. I don't know. But along the, along the years, like over the years, my, my definition of art has just grown to basically include everything. Right. Yeah, well, I, I think that's definitely a work of art. I mean, that's, um, you know, memorials. I, I think the ironic thing is that, it, you know, when they first commissioned it, they expected it more to be a sculpture 
or more art-like, and it actually is, I think, even more a piece of art because it isn't a traditional sculpture. Yeah, it's not like a yeah. statue of like some soldiers, like whatever. right, right. Like what they're thinking about, what they're doing for the World War II memorial, which is just crazy. But... Well, I mean, what Sloan, what you just said, totally reminds me of this um, Holocaust memorial in Boston, where yeah. it's like these four like towers of glass, but it's, I mean. So first of all, it's impressive from far away, but when you go inside and you look up and it's, I think it's every, I don't know if it's every number carved into the glass or every name carved into oh, the glass. Wow. Uh, and it goes up high and, um, but it also has like, like little like stories about some of the people in it too. And it's, it's like a public thing. You can, it, you can just walk through it. Yeah, look it up. It's called the New England Holocaust Memorial. You got to check it out sometime. Yeah, I I think there's there's something about that, like um, like just being confronted with like any kind of talisman that represents these abstract concepts that we have in our minds. I feel like I don't know. I was I was thinking about this once when I, I was thinking about like the national debt, you know, or like. Just yeah. ridiculous numbers, like one trillion. What it's like, nobody really yeah. understands what that means. Like, I thought to myself, if I could get a room, and and not not use actual money, but like cut paper to be this the exact size, like and make sure it's the same weight as like the paper that they use to make currency, and and just like stack up, like this is what the national debt would look like if it were like stacks of hundreds. You know, like you I would need, need a huge room. room. I would need like a yeah. warehouse. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and then to like, I could set up the stacks to make almost like a labyrinth, like a hedge labyrinth almost. Um, was at least this is like how it was kind of playing out in my head when I came up with this idea. Um, you know, I feel like maybe then people would get some kind of an idea of what that number actually means. Like, there's a ticker in in New York City that is on like one of the buildings that says like what the it's just it's just like a digital number ticker that says what our national debt is. Like, right, right. And it's like well, keeping track of it like in real time. And and like I can remember driving and seeing it on the building and just like watching the numbers. And I just don't right. feel like people really have an idea of what that means. What even more mean. than the national debt, it's it. I think the the more the the crazier thing is like what'd you do, Andy? Andy right. dropped something. The crazier thing is. Is Andy like how you. much? Yeah, Andy <laughs> fell. You know, he dropped. He dropped <laughs> no, but um, the crazier thing is how much like Jeff Bezos has. Yeah, in something money. like that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. compared to like how much a normal, Carl Restino has, like a Carl Restino <laughs> has, which is nothing. <laughs> like, like, like in, in like, like, and like how. How Bezos can't spend that fucking money in a million fucking years. Right, right. And, right. and like like how fucked up capitalism is. You know what I yeah. mean? Like why should somebody have that much and other people have nothing? You right. know, like right. kind of right. fucking you know. Yeah, like, like and, he has and, more and than he, some countries. Yeah. You know, like, oh, that's that's right. many countries. Many countries. Yeah. 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 When you see well, it stacked up. That could be the next. Nuts. That could be the next. Uh, that could be the evolution of this idea. Like that's like the next room take, over. Like, 
yeah, like now, like this is the money of the one percent, you know, like, right? Yeah, and, and, this, and, here's the like. and we could change the way that the labyrinth is. Like it could, it could be yeah. like we could give like aerial view maps, like that you right. used to have for like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, of, of like <laughs> of, of like what the the stacks, like the pathway that the stacks kind of lead you through, and that could be dead ends right. and stuff. Like that could, and there could be like signs or <laughs> that give out information at the at the dead ends, like right. About and then it, just some of the horrific things that that are, right. Um, so your so so your salary could be equal to the hit points of a cobalt. And like, <laughs> Jeff, what would Jeff Bezos' salary be? Like a Tiamat dragon. Yeah, yeah. Like Jeff that. Bezos would be like Tiamat, like five Tiamat. Uh, even on on that scale, it's it's more than right. five. It's like it's it's like hundreds. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like hundreds of Tiamats, mm -hmm. and you'd be uh, like a right. cobalt. Right. But in this in installation, once you go through it, the, the last room you go into is the first room you entered. And that's when you realize that's the, like the the room where it's like the amount of money that an average person makes. And it's like just in this corner, there's like this tiny little pile. <laughs> it, it could be a turd in the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be a tiny turd, a mouse turd in the corner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be awesome. Like you'd be like, where? What? Where's? Where, there's an arrow pointing down, and yeah. you're like, where's? What an average person makes, and you like look. You need a magnifying glass to look at a mouse turd. That'd be like a magnifying glass on a mouse turd. That, that's where that saying comes from. Yeah. So anyway, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I feel like we we started off, and I was I was talking about like my love of Jane's addiction, and then I was in its cover band. Well, we, and then we moved on to teaching. We we moved on to teaching, but there was something I was going to say. This really cool thing happened, like a. When I was in high school, I I used to just, like, plaster Jane's Addiction lyrics, like, all over the covers of my notebooks and binders. And, like, you know, like, everybody yeah. knew I would wear Jane's Addiction t-shirts to school. Everybody knew, like, I was the Jane's Addiction fan. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. and I was, like, constantly introducing people to, like, Jane, Jane's Addiction. And there was this one, there was this one guy, Mickey, I became, like, really good friends with. He based, I'm sure he probably listened to Jane's Addiction probably because of me. And, uh. And anyway, so now fast forward past high school, past college, whatever. Now I'm in this cover band, and um, me and the drummer, we like, like when we were just doing like sound checks or whatever, we would do like, um, we would kind of just do like the beginning of like three days. And mm -hmm. um, so now we're on the stage at the South Street Seaport in Manhattan, and. We were doing like it was during the day, and we were doing the sound check. And Oakley had like kind of hired us to. They were opening a store right on that strip by the South Street Seaport, and um, they hired us to like, as a band for this event of their like store opening. So <laughs> anyway, so we got some cool sunglasses out of it, but whatever. So we're we're up there, and I'm I I start playing three days, and so the drummer, my cousin yeah. Joe, like comes in. And then all of a sudden I see this guy in a suit, like walking in the distance and he like, uh, breaks away from, from like the crowd on the, like on the sidewalk and he starts walking like in a straight line, like right at the band. So, you know, we're, we're playing it 
three days, you know, and then he gets closer and then he just starts pointing at me and he's there by himself in a suit and he's just pointing at me and I'm, I'm playing the whole three days baseline. And then I look over and I, I realize this is Mickey who's become like a <laughs> stockbroker and, and he's like down on Wall Street, like going for a job. And like, he's, it's like, this is like my high school friend, like who, I guess he, he yeah. heard the James Addiction call of the, of like, right. And, and then it, like, so we totally reconnected after like years of not having talked. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> um, I finally realized it was, it was Mickey from high school, like just standing there. Like now he's like, he was like, a you bet it wasn't like, like Perry Farrell. Oh, that would have been from awesome. The gutter. That would have been awesome. Yeah, yeah, like that's what I thought. Yeah, like he's like, I'll take over the lyrics from here. Ah. <laughs> but um, anyway, the the cover band thing is real tough. It's a re- yeah. and we were yeah. not really doing it full time. So like, I had a teaching job going on. That was like my main concern. And and there was people out there that we were kind of undercutting and taking jobs from that. Like this was their mm-hmm. livelihood, you know. And like when we realized that, mm-hmm. I kind of felt a little like an asshole. Were you guys about good? It, you know? like, I think we were good. good I mean, were yeah, I think we were good. Oh, um, sweet! Well, you I gotta we come were, back we and, and do a do a show for us, man. Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> I mean, we never had anybody say like. I feel like we had a better sound than like a lot of the other bands. Like our equipment nice. was just was just dialed in like perfect and and like our guitarist was just really serious about making sure that everything was set up right like before we would perform and i, I owe Great. a lot of that to him because he just was like constantly like messing with the eqs and like making sure that there was no right. like feedback yeah. and everything like he just had all the technical stuff down like he would wrap the chords like in a special way and like yeah, those like right. you know so the Velcro would... zip ties that he would like make sure everything was packed up perfect, and then he would unpack everything. He was just very meticulous about it. Um, even after he left our band, he would come to support, um, and we would be like, "You got to come up here and fix the sound, man." And he would do it on, like on his own. He would just he would be in the audience, and he would just be like, uh, he would start telling me like what to do, and I'd be like, "No, just." Just come do it, and he would come up and like fix everything, and it would sound awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, yeah so Mr. Rico, Danny Rico, uh, on guitar. Yeah, he yeah. was he was good, um, and he had a way of like making the like just filling it out because we were just the guitar, a bass, drums, and vocal, and as mm-hmm. a four piece band to like have things sound the way that they do from the recording studio. You know what I mean? It's just really difficult. Yeah. So, yeah. And we didn't, we didn't have any backing tracks or anything like that. We were just, it was us. That was it. And, uh, um, what was your favorite know, tune to really play? Good. Oh, wow. This is weird thing about being in a band. Like people say like, what songs did you guys play? And it's like, I could pick up a bass right now and I could play them. Like I could play like 60 to hundred different songs just off memory, but if you told me, if you asked me, like, what their names are. <laughs> <laughs> no, that like, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're like, you're like, oh, well, I used to play do do Yeah, I just have no idea. There's a lot of good bass in those James Addiction Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ted just admit it. Baseline was awesome, and, like, the three days baseline is just unmistakable. 
Yeah. Mountain Song bass line, just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Mountain Song was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, oh, all of it. But, uh, yeah. But you've done a lot of other things, too, besides, like, I, I mean, you were a dance instructor for a while, and then you spent a lot of yeah. time uh, studying at the New York Charlotte Temple. I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that at all. Yeah. So growing up, you know, I was raised a kind of Roman Catholic um, in a Sicilian yeah. household. And, and, um, but my dad was agnostic. And so he would, he would like, kind of like, I don't know, we would come home from church or whatever. And he, and he would just like, be like, so why can't God make a rock? That's like too heavy for him to lift. You know, like, he yeah. would just hit us right. with these weird right. like philosophical questions that were like, and I, at the time we just weren't really ready for it, but he also had this thing like, yeah. he would, he made us watch Wait. like um, Kung Fu with David Carradine, you know? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. That was, that was full of, I mean, yeah, it should have been Bruce Lee. Don't get me. I totally, whatever. But, um, but David Carradine did a pretty decent job uh, of like presenting kind of a shallow, uh, like uh, just kind of like the, a little bit of like kind of Chan Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, like some Shaolin philosophy was definitely embedded in those in those episodes. So, so there was like this this kind of philosophy thing that was going on like between my dad and me and my brother, and and then like um, I guess at some point like in college, I just thought to myself like I need to I need to like just really understand like I've been brought up as a Roman Catholic. I need to really understand this because I was starting to feel like it was bullshit, but you know, when you're that deep in, it, it was tough to, it was really tough to just let go of all of that. Like, um, like almost the foundation of who I was, was like built on this identity of like being a Christian. And so, um, I was like, you know what, before I just abandon this, um, let me really give it a, a chance. And I tried to find a master of Christianity who I could, I could like, just like learn from, you know, and like try to understand like, what's the philosophy here. And uh, so we went to a bunch of churches and we, we tried talking with a lot of the priests and um, I, I met some really cool priests. This one guy who I really felt like kind of walked the, the talk. He, he, he said to me like, um, Somebody came to him, and their their son-in-law, their their daughter's fiance was in a car accident, and they needed like a kidney transplant, and, and like they were like asking him to like you know talk to God to intercede, you know, or whatever. And he was like, you know what, what the what the hell kind of Christian am I? Like, it's I, I could sit here and pray till I'm blue in the face. That's not going to get this guy a kidney. Like, let me go down to the hospital and see if I'm a match. And the priest went down and wound up being a match. And then he donated a kidney and like basically saved this guy's life. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I was yeah. like, this wow. guy is the real, like this guy actually uh, fucking sorry. believes yeah. what he's talking about. Right. Like that's right. That's some real Christian shit right there. So I was like, let me yeah. pick this guy's brain, you know, like, so like we would meet and have coffee, whatever. Like, um, and just like shoot the shit. And, and what he basically revealed was that like, 
there were a lot of priests who just like weren't their knowledge of everything was kind of skin just skin deep and like sitting around the rectory they would like be having dinner and he's like rather than talking about philosophy or like they'd be like just chatting about like whatever tv show they had seen you know like and, right and i was like that's not what i imagine like that's not what i picture like i picture people are like having these heavy fucking conversations about like the nature of fucking reality or you know like something you know so <laughs> that's what um, they yeah. should be yeah doing. You know, or like God, you know, like so. So then I was like, anyway, at the so I was searching for this this kind of spiritual master, and at the same time, I had grown up doing martial arts and fallen away from it when I was in college. And then I was like, you know what, I need to, I need some discipline in my life because college was so, like RISD was so structured and and just like like everything was scheduled out, and, and it might shock and Andy to hear me say this, but like. <laughs> because he knows like, yeah. how I was spending some of my time, but, but it just was a very, it was like a much, much more structured environment than what I had now that I was just spit out into the world, you know, and uh, now yeah. I didn't have any of that. Like, so, and I didn't have access to any of the shops. I didn't have access to any of the tools. I didn't have, I was just like basically stripped of any ability to do the artwork that I had just been trained to do. Yeah. And, um, I mean, what what type of shops did they have at RISD? Oh, I mean, the, I mean the glass shops alone. Yeah, like all the cold working shops. There was there was like all all the like ceramic shops, all the metal working shops. There was like jewelry shops, and there was like there was a metal foundry. There was all kinds of yeah. stuff there. That so yeah, to- yeah, Carl. Any any art school? I mean, it's it's a big thing. I had a lot of friends. Um, after you get out of art school, you could work at, say, for me, it was like the photo stock room. And then you still have access, you know, mm-hmm. to everything because you're yeah. an employee. So you can check out the photo equipment, the film equipment. You can walk in and do ceramics and throw something in the kiln if you want. So, yeah. Really? Art, yeah, it's it's a shock getting out of art school and not having access yes. to all that. Uh, yeah. Wow. It was rough. Yeah, so, it's all about the facilities. Yeah, so I was like, I need discipline in my life again, you know, like, so one of the things that had given that to me when I was a kid was martial arts. So I was like, you know what, let me talk to my brother. Let's, let's get back into martial arts. Let's do it. And, um, at the time on the discovery channel, we saw this show that was about a Shaolin master. And, uh, this guy basically had grown up in the Shaolin temple in China. His parents had left him off when he was like three years old or some ridiculously young age. And, um, and then uh, they, they they took him in and basically raised him from that age, like all the way up until now. So uh, then they the government set up this kind of like cultural tour and they got a bunch of the monks together who were like at the top of their like physical abilities, you know, and, and there and then they got them to tour the world. Basically, when they were in New York, uh, well, actually, when they were in the U.S., they were out in California, and uh, this guy just decided he was going to go back to China, uh, and he defected. So he eventually found his way. Um, so you know, to make a long story short, there he found his way to New York City, and he opened up a temple uh, on Broadway in Manhattan. And the Discovery Channel found out about him, and the guy just could do some amazing. Like uh, they're called like hard chi kung. His, his level of physical conditioning 
it was just at such a, a high level that, you know, uh, he, he was just able to do some pretty amazing physical feats. So they had recorded this and then they explained like, so at the end it said like, he has this temple in Manhattan and here I am on Long Island and I'm looking for this master and I'm like, this is the guy. Like, how do I not just go into Manhattan? Like some people commute from Long Island into Manhattan, like every day for their job. Like, like it's nothing. So like, how do I not just take a trip into Manhattan just to find out like, is this guy for real? Um, but this was basically like a, a Shaolin monk straight out of like my childhood romantic idea of, of that whole philosophy and that whole lifestyle, you know, like here he was like within, within reach. Um, in real life. So my brother and I, we wound up going there. And, um, as soon as we walked in, um, like trying to get into the actual temple was this whole, like, it was like this puzzle because there was an elevator, but the elevator was one of those old, like kind of like freight elevators. And we had never used anything even remotely like that before in our lives. And there were instructions posted on the wall of the elevator that said like, press like, the Shaolin Temple's on on the third floor. So they're like, press three. If the doors won't open, then press two and then hit stop and then press three again. And there was just all <laughs> these like weird instructions. So we kept trying to make the elevator work. It wouldn't work. After the third or fourth time, we both, my brother and I, were looking at each other and were like, just embarrassed. Like we could hear people yelling through the door of the elevator, like from the third floor. Like, press three, you know, press two, press th like uh, the elevator just kept going up and down from one to two to three to two to three to two to three. We're like, forget this. We, we can't even go up there now. I can't even show my face up there. So as we were leaving, <laughs> we're like, wait a second. There are stairs. There's got to be stairs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we took the stairs up and then uh, we knocked on the back door of this, of the, the like training area where the temple was on the third floor and this guy in robes like basically like a kid in robes he opens the door and he looks at us and my brother and i both had shaved heads um and he immediately like strikes this pose and he starts he's, he basically say he says amitofo and we're like <laughs> what like he said it to us like as though we should know like we were already like, I don't know if he thought we were already monks or something. I don't know what. Yeah, so yeah. he like, uh, we're like, is we're here to see, like, is Shifu Shuyan Ming here? We're here to see Shuyan Ming. So he just, like, runs away. Like, literally, he ran away and then ran back. And then he, he, like, asked us to come in. So we take off our shoes. We go into the place. And then um, he leads us over to Shuyan Ming. He's 34th generation Shaolin Temple monk, like, fighting monk. And uh, we were there, like, right when class was going on. And he's, like, teaching level one, like, kung fu. So we're, like, um, there, like, during a stretching break. And this guy leads us up to him. And he turns around and he looks at us. And he just goes, finally. Like, as though he'd been waiting. Like, as though he'd been waiting for us to, like, come to the temple. You know, like, so... Basically, like, uh, we were like, you know, we're here to we're here to check out class and get information. And my brother, I don't know what happened, but he like immediately slipped into like Saturday morning Kung Fu talk. And he's like, long time have we traveled to, you know, to, 
to see you, Master. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, so I'm looking at him and I'm like, I'm trying to like kind of nudge him like back into like being himself again, but he kept right. he kept talking like this, and I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, all right, we're just gonna sit and watch class. So we're sitting, we're watching the class, and I'm like, it was a level one class, and we're watching it. And at the time, what we didn't realize is that all of the students, no matter what level they were, they were encouraged to go to the level one classes. So there were some people who'd been there training for years who were at this level one class training. But we're watching them and we're like, holy shit, this is level one? Like, there is no level before this. This is this is it. And like, they're going. And like, two hours went past and they were still going. And we were like, this is, this is crazy. And then at one point they started lining up and they were doing cartwheels, like consecutive cartwheels. And I was like, I've, I was like, have you ever done a cartwheel? My brother said to me, have you ever done a cartwheel in your life? And I was like, nah, he goes, neither have I. He's like, not intentionally. He's like, maybe snowboarding, like unintentionally. <laughs> I did some cartwheels, but I never tried to do a cartwheel. He's like, we need to train in order to train. Like, we're not ready for this. <laughs> um, and that was probably the dumbest thing that we ever thought in our entire lives. Uh, we should have just signed up right then and there. Um, but instead, we decided we were going to go back home to Long Island and we were going to like try to find somebody nearby who could like get us ready to <laughs> go in and, and like train this legit like Shaolin Kung Fu. Um, every Saturday, there was a Buddhism class. And so we were like, we you know what, we're in this, like, after we finally decided to, like, just sign up for, like, for Christmas one year, kind of ironically, for Christmas, we gave each other memberships to the temple to, like, train Sean right. and get into this. So, like, uh, so we, we started doing, like, at the time, we were still kind, kind of Christian and, I think, culturally Christian, um, but sort of starting to kind of break free from that. And, uh, so we started going to these Buddhism classes and um, his, he, he doesn't really think of Buddhism as a religion. He thinks of it just as a, he presents it as a philosophy and you can then apply it to whatever religion you wanted to practice, like whatever you, whatever you would do it. Right. So we were like right. going to these Buddhism classes and um, basically he made an announcement and said that he was going to, he was going to accept personal disciples um, and this was kind of a really big deal because he had already received challenges from a lot of the masters like in Chinatown in the city because he was teaching, he was teaching round eyes. You know, he's here he is teaching non-Chinese, like traditional Shaolin martial arts. And that was like, you know, it was almost kind of like Bruce Lee, like how Bruce Lee got challenged. They would like show up and tell him like, you can't, you can't teach them this. Um mm-hmm. And then he would just basically say, like, listen, I'm I'm Shayan Ming and I'm thirty fourth generation Shaolin Temple fighting monk. The first person who steps to me is gonna be the first person who hits the floor. I will teach whoever I wanna teach, whatever I wanna teach. And one guy made a move like he was gonna do something and then he backed off and then like the whole like all the masters who had come just all piled back in the elevator and left. But basically he would he just was like, I'm going to take disciples. Like the, so this is like the first step towards wow. becoming like a Shaolin monk. 
was becoming the personal disciple of that's not true actually the first step was becoming a disciple of the temple and then the second step was becoming a personal disciple of uh, like a chan buddhist master right. so so we were my brother and i just were like immediately were like yes we're doing that so we became his personal disciples back in uh, 2000 and then in 2001 uh, he decided he was going to take he was going to go on a trip with all of his disciples to china to mm -hmm. to introduce us to uh, his master and also just kind of let us see like the birthplace of this 15 to 1600 year old tradition that he was imparting to us. And I just kind of felt like it was a really important thing for us to go on that trip and, and see that. Yeah. But I just didn't, I just didn't have the money to do it at the time. And so I explained that and he was like, no problem. He's like, you you'll come with me. And, He's like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So my brother and I just were like, I mean, it's a, it's, it was kind of a, it was a difficult thing to accept, but at the same time, it was an easy thing to accept. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> and and part of this whole like becoming his disciple was almost like an adoption into his family. Mm -hmm. um, and, right. And still to this day, I still I I think of him like. Um, you know, like an extension of my family, like almost like a, right. a, like a father, um, which is, you know, I don't say that lightly because, you know, I, I love and respect my biological father very, very much. Uh, right. um, and I don't mean any disrespect to him whatsoever and, or any dishonor to him in any, in any way. But, um, but it was very much like I would become adopted by, Chan um, being into his family, and it's like a mentor. Yeah, so it was. Yeah. It was like it was tough to accept some of the things that he wanted to do for us, but you know, we've I've tried my best to repay that uh, as much as possible, and um, and so we wound up going to China, and it's a crazy thing. We actually flew back out of China on September 11th. We were in the air. Oh wow! Yeah, 2001. Um, but anyway, we got Did we got totally stuck? stuck in Vancouver. Um, but and prior to that, uh, yeah, prior to that, we had been stuck in Hong Kong uh, because there was all kinds of um, shenanigans that had gone down with like yeah. um, like this guy's had defected from China. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't like the fact that he had left, and it had definitely caused some people to lose face. And not only that, but they considered him to be like a national treasure. And wow. here he here he was like now they had him in in their grasp, you know, like here he was right. back in China. And so uh, they in in one of the airports they they basically like uh, tried to arrest him. And they tried to do that after we were already boarded onto a plane. So almost wow. all the people who had gone with him on the trip were on a plane already. And all of a sudden, one of the one of the people who was with us on the trip comes into the plane, and they said, "They're they're arresting Shifu. Like, we all need to like get off the plane and, and help him. Like, so like immediately, we all just got up and we grabbed our like carry ons and we started right. to like force our way out of the plane because like the staff on the plane was not trying to hear that we were leaving. Right. Yeah. 
And so at one point we were like, again, my brother kind of like slipped into Saturday morning Kung Fu talk. He, <laughs> the pilot of the plane like came out and was like trying to like challenge us, you know, like, and my brother looked at him and, and, and kind of like grabbed his arm and he said, they have our master. <laughs> we're going to get him you know like don't leave until we get back yeah but like you can't tell a pilot to a plane don't leave. Pre- pretty much you can't give them any directions that's just yeah. that's that's illegal so um basically we all left the plane now we're stuck in the airport uh they had there was one member of our group who was a, a new york city detective and he had stuck with Schiffel. Like they were trying to incite him to fight uh, right. because once he fought back, then they could really arrest him. You know, like that, yeah. had something on him. So this detective just wrapped his arms around Schiffel and like brought him to the ground and just kept saying to him over and over, do not fight back. Do not resist. Do not fight back. So they just started kicking them like on the ground. And then, oh, and then they, they dragged them away from all of us into a room. Uh, but that guy D, he would not let go of him. So that so that they had to drag them both. So then they had us in this like quarantine section of the airport, and they had all these armed guards there. And then finally, like somebody from the embassy was called. One person who was with us was from Time Asia, and uh, and they had a bunch of contacts, and they started reaching out to them. And then the guy from the embassy came and he said to us, "Listen, you guys all have a choice right now." You can either, you can either all get onto the next plane that they'll that they're going to be willing to like put you on, and like get out of here, or you could decide that you're going to stay here to try to protect your master, and then they're going to put you in prison. And yeah, you'll be in a Chinese prison, and I'll be able to visit you for like one hour every month. And we were just like, all of a sudden, people started coming unglued. So yeah. like we yeah. were on a group visa and. Some of the people were like people who are die hard, like Shaolin to the end, you know, like tattooed on them, like whatever, you know, like all of a sudden they're like, oh, no, 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 man, I got to go to school, you know, or like, oh, no, I, I have to go to work, you know, like, they're like, you got to go to work. They're going to kill this guy. Like, they're going to kill right. Shifu if if you like get on a plane and leave. This yeah. is like it's game over for him, you know, like you can't leave right now. So like. So there started to be this whole big conversation that was going, like this huge debate that was going on, like among the people. And then all of a sudden they had released, they released all of our luggage to us. So these carts with all of our luggage starts to get wheeled over to us by like airport employees. And I, I'm looking at the guards and they're like chain smoking, like, like gripping onto these like automatic weapons that they all have. And they're like, this one guy's looking at the cart, chain smoking, and the cart is just bristling with weapons that we had bought. Right. While we were on these travels, so there's like stabs <laughs> and like, <laughs> and like swords and staffs, like just like sticking out of this like a porcupine. And they they bring this thing over to us, and then I, all of a sudden the tune changed, and they're like, "Okay, they're gonna put you guys all like under house arrest," and. Um, they're going to put you into this hotel and nobody can leave the hotel. If you try to leave the hotel, you'll be arrested. So now we're in this hotel and, uh, basically, um, they wound up releasing Shifu back to us 
uh, he was at the hotel and then he was able to kind of reach out to some of his connections and try to make this all kind of uh, blow over a little bit. Uh, once we felt confident that like the emergency of it was over and that he felt confident that he was going to be able to get out, they started putting us on airplanes. Like we, we allowed that to happen. So uh, they started putting us on flights out and they decided to do this alphabetically. And it was just by like, however many empty seats just happened to be on a plane. Um, so it was like in drips and drabs of like three or four people. They kept like every morning, another small group of us would leave. And then uh, finally they got to the S's and me and my brother uh, got on a plane. We wound up in Hong Kong. So now we were in, a hotel in Hong Kong and we were being watched there definitely. Um, but it wasn't quite as obvious. So we were able to leave the hotel, but they were, we were definitely being like tailed by, by people and yeah. being watched. So, so anyway, we, we were in Hong Kong just waiting every day for like when we would get another, our, you know, our next plane out from Hong Kong back to New York. Um, and for us, it just happened to be September 11th. <laughs> so, wow. we're, yeah, we're, we're in the air and all of a sudden we're, we're landing in Vancouver. And we were supposed to land in Vancouver. So that was kind of a natural layover. But we had all just been through this really super hectic. Yeah. Right. We were all really scared about like what had just happened. And we're, we're like on the runway and they're not letting us out. You know, they're so we're like we've been sitting in this plane now for like almost an hour. Like, what the fuck is going on? And now we're starting to hatch plans. Like, listen, if they come on here to try to get us, <laughs> we're gonna like we're gonna do X, Y, and Z. Like, we're gonna do this. We're gonna like all rush off the plane and seek asylum in Vancouver. You know, like in Canada. And it actually it, has nothing to do with you. It had right? absolutely nothing to do with us. And then finally, <laughs> somebody on the plane like goes, "Oh my god." And we're like, and then they're just like, oh my God. And then like one of the flight attendants walks over and they're like, they're like, what's, what's going on? Not even the flight attendants knew what was happening. Uh, so the pilot must've known, but right. we look out the window and there was just planes littering the, the runways. Like just so many planes that it was just gridlock of planes. Finally, um, the, that person had called home to let them know that we had gotten out of China safely and uh, someone at home had told them that a plane had just flown into the, the Twin Towers so then when the second plane flew in that's when they had they were reacting like that and and the, right. the yeah. flight attendant walked yeah. over and said what's going on and they said two planes just flew into the World Trade Center and like everybody within like earshot of that just was like, what? Like what? And then, so then the flight attendant like immediately dashed up to the cockpit and, uh, and then I guess they realized like, all right, the cat's out of the bag. Like you got to You have to make some kind of announcement and tell people what's going on, you know? And, um, so then the pilot made an announcement, basically explained like, um, you know, this, this doesn't appear to be like an accident. This is definitely an attack. Um, so we were like, holy shit, you know, like we just couldn't believe it. Um, they wound up slowly getting us off the plane. We walked 
from the plane because we were far away from the airport where we stopped. Um, so we had to walk to, to the airport. We got all of our stuff. And then um, they started like getting buses in that were bringing people to, like, to where they were going to be put up. I don't know how it happened, but we definitely lucked out on this because they put us up in this five-star hotel that was like right on the water. I, I've never slept in a bed that was more comfortable than that bed. And maybe because we had just been sleeping in these like tiny little Chinese yeah. beds for like a month or whatever. <laughs> yeah. but, um, we were in rags. Like we were wearing like all our like robes basically that we were hand washing in like sinks and stuff like for, for a month. Right. <laughs> and like we go to go up to our room and the elevator opens up and there's like a woman in a cocktail dress, a guy in like his three piece suit. Like they're going out to, to like some event. And there we are in just like ripped rags. Like, we looked like homeless people, basically, like, walking into this elevator. And um, they put us up there. We were there for, like, a week at least, almost two weeks. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Every day, they had these amazing buffets of food that were prepared just for us. We went out to um, just kind of check out Vancouver. And everywhere we went, when people found out that we were from New York, like, people were just so incredibly oh nice. God. They were like trying to buy us meals and they were they were buying us beers and they were you know like inviting us into their homes and it just was the outpouring of compassion uh, from the people there was just uh, it was it was just it was pretty astounding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Uh, we eventually went up back to New York and you know it was still smoking. Yeah. Uh, and it just was unbelievable, you know, and it was just, there was just this weird, there was an exhaustion that had taken us from being in China because you just, whenever you're in a foreign place like that, you really got to be on your toes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had especially, because we're walking around wearing shirts that said in Chinese <laughs> that we were Shaolin Temple, you know, like that we were right. representing the Shaolin Temple and, and we're in like robes and, and like people are looking at us like, you guys are not Chinese. There's no way. Like one guy actually tried to start a fight with me in the street because he read my shirt. Right. And he started pushing me around. And, and he's like, uh, you know, I, I learned a little bit of Chinese while we were there, but he's like, which basically means like USA Shaolin temple. He's like, they, there's no real word for USA there. They call USA like the beautiful country. Mm-hmm. So means like beautiful beautiful land so they're like make wash shaolin so they're like no it, you know that, that's impossible so we were like no it's not impossible it's it's happening you know it's really happening uh we're here we are <laughs> yeah like, and they're like they're like no you know like they just could not hack it they could not deal with the fact that right um, there were non-chinese who were being like pretty much know brought into this like just brought into this tradition that was Mm -hmm. typically exclusively chinese Um, and it was a huge deal for your master to return to china too right i mean huge the news was everywhere like following our trip when we got to the shaolin temple the there were like there were like four elders that kind of stayed there through the cultural revolution and um 
Like one of them was this this guy Sushi. Sure, Sushi. He he um he was like uh, confined to a wheelchair. He had Parkinson's and he had just been beaten horribly by the Red Guard and by the people of the village because the Red Guard would threaten their families if they didn't like they would put him in a stockade and they would say like they would tell people like go up and beat him and like if you don't they were gonna like kill their family so it was like people who loved him you know who were like now forced to just go and beat him you know like um and he would just say like do it like go ahead do it you know like um so he'd for you know for however long like years he was just abused by the red guard and, and like so like when he saw Shifu Ming, like back at the temple, like he just lit up. And he, at one point, like he invited us into their tea room. They have like a reception room where they meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all in the tea room and um, they like, they bring us all tea and then they wheeled him in and he started talking and like we had translators. So he's, he was basically just recounting like times from Shifu's, like childhood where like funny things that he had done or like how much he, he loved him. And, and like, um, he said to us, this is always open to you. The Shaolin temple is your home. Like you, you are his disciples. Then like, you're always welcome here no matter what. And then when we were leaving the, the ceremony of this, like this kind of like tea ceremony, he got up out of his wheelchair and he started doing like one of the, uh, foundational like uh, Shaolin Kung Fu forms mm-hmm. and it was like it took us a second to like realize what just what the hell was going on but like here he was he was like he got up he got up and he was doing like uh, Shao Hong Chuan and we're like just like what holy crap like wow I like this was just like he did this just basically like as as like a, a show of respect like this guy could barely even stand and here he was like just yeah. like the energy that poured into him from seeing his you know like this this younger generation come in and see Shifu Shanming back at the temple like you just feel the love and uh, the connection that they had and you could tell he just wanted to make it special for him and yeah um, yeah yeah uh anyway there i mean everywhere we went Shifu was like he's a celebrity there there's like billboards plastered with him. He was basically the poster child of Shaolin in China. Like in all of the like coffee table books, that's about like the Shaolin temple that you see in like all the gift shops everywhere we went. It's just all pictures of him like doing Shaolin Kung Fu and like, um, just, so here we were like learning from this man. Like, you know, that you kind of take somebody for granted. Like, right. When, when you have such easy access to them, you know, but like, yeah. in China, there's people who were, they were like their entire family's like savings was being spent just to send them for the chance that they could maybe learn from this guy. Wow. And now yeah. here we were in China, like in Manhattan, like such spoiled fucking Americans, <laughs> uh, like having access to him, like all, all day, every day, like for basically you know, for nothing compared to what these people were sacrificing to make that. Yeah. And you guys rolled happen. into that place, like not knowing what the hell you were getting into. Like when you first went, uh, went to the temple or whatever, 
You didn't even know what you found, right? No, no, we had no idea. We, I mean, we had seen him on the Discovery Channel and just thought he was fucking cool. You know, <laughs> like, right. uh, wow, that guy, like, that, but here again was like, like kind of what I said about that guy, who, the priest who gave his kidney. Here again was a guy who was, he was fucking walking the talk. You know, like, right. he wasn't doing much talking. He was doing way more walking than talking. Right. And, and like, you could tell that he was, his, he was a living embodiment of a philosophy. Like it right. was, right. it was pure Chan Buddhism that was directing his, his living. And um, it's just powered by Chan Buddhism, you know? And it's like, he's, I mean, he's just, he's an amazing man. It's amazing. And, and the sacrifices that he made in order to try to start a Shaolin temple here in the United States um, are, just uh impossible to calculate so so his dream was to to basically open up a shaolin temple in the states very much like the one that he had grown up in and so um you know as time has gone gone by like like me my brother like all of his disciples have kind of tried to add our energy into making that dream happen and eventually he did. He purchased some land in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, and um, we are slowly building that dream right there. Um, and so, part of that is like every summer now, I've been a camp director for a Shaolin live like sleep away summer camp that happens for like <laughs> teens, uh, where. Like people who want to, like teenagers who want to come and basically immerse themselves in what life was like as close as we can make it um, to the Shaolin Temple in China, uh, they can come to the summer camp. (laughs) Um, I'm laughing because the schedule of this summer camp is so ridiculous, like so ridiculously hard. And, And these kids come from all over. We've had people like kids come from all over the world to like right. to like be a part of the summer camp, and the transformations that we've seen these kids go through is, has just been amazing. Uh, what they're like from day one when they first arrive to when they're leaving, um, and that's just having like two weeks of, of like twenty four seven access to these kids right. and just like throwing them into this like as basically throw them in the deep end of Shaolin Kung Fu, like, and Chan philosophy. Um, and they either sink or swim, you know, and like, we've had a couple of people who were like, I gotta get out of here, I can't take it, like, I can't deal with it. Like, this isn't what I, <laughs> this is what I imagined, but we're very clear on our website, like, what the camp is like, mm-hmm. and what the schedule is like, and what it's gonna, like, what the purpose of it is. Um, right. And so... You know, I, I mean, I'm always surprised when people come and they're surprised. Like, <laughs> we, we're training pretty much. It's just nonstop training. And then, yeah, Chan philosophy like at, at every possible moment. All right. That was a freaking super intense story. Yeah. yeah I think man. we yeah. end it. Uh, but, um, yeah. do you want to, do you want to, uh, 
tell us the links to the Shaolin Temple if people are interested in checking out the yeah, summer I mean, camp or going yeah, to the temple in people New York? can basically go to like you know usashaolintemple.com uh yeah and from there they they'll find all the information they need uh if they go into the Shaolin summer camp section uh, you know, we didn't run it this past summer because of, you know, obviously because of COVID. But COVID. COVID, yeah. It's, it's been going since at least 2012. Um, and, um, you know, it's building every year. And the grounds are building every year. We're, we're trying to, you know, definitely, um, you know, we're trying to recreate this. The, you know, we're trying to basically have a, a functioning Shaolin monastery here. Yeah, the U.S. Uh, um, I mean, I yes. can't even begin to tell you like how it's transformed my life, and like all of the benefits that I've gotten from this training, and uh, you know, from the philosophy, and and like how it's. I mean, I basically, I feel like it saved my life. You know, like right. Um, and that might be a story for another podcast, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we are gonna yeah. have you on in like six months. Yeah, yeah. Like tune in. You can talk about that one. Like tune in next time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Find out. Yeah. And I hope to get a lighter, a lighter story about your trip in China at the noodles. No, that was super intense, yeah. dude. Oh yeah, yeah, man. That was great. Amazing story. He's it, wrapped everything in September 11th. Fucking. I, uh, <laughs> I know. Wow. Colin monks and like, oh, wow, that's gonna be one of the top uh, Canada. Canada Arch Arches yeah. about that. All right. So uh Chris, what are you? Live Yeah, com, Instagram, yada yada. I'm um, Mad Carl. And Andy. I'm com. And get the hell out of the art shit. Uh thanks, Andrew Sloan, for being on the uh podcast. Thanks to Carl. This is my pleasure. My pleasure, man. And, uh, thanks to uh, Ed Dial and Andy's Inspire for the Mad Girl Stop. Thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this super yeah, intense super story. Wow, man. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Thanks to Perry Farrell, too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> inspiring us all. Kissing in the shower. Kissing in the shower, something a skill I had not picked up until my brother Carl introduced me. <laughs> I didn't even know. Very feral, dude. I was just joking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, have a good, have a good week, everyone. I'm turning up the music so we need to talk to me. <laughs> oh, oh, you uh, shut it off? I shut up. All right. I guess I had to start over. talking. All right, it's done.